0: Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and
1: welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Suzanne Kearns. She's a professor of aviation safety, training methodologies, and human factors at the University of Waterloo, uh, where she explores a lot of topics around human limitations and how they contribute to accidents and incidents former airplane and helicopter pilot. She's also the founding director of the Waterloo Institute for Sustainable Aeronautics, which we'll talk about shortly. So first, Suzanne, tell me a little bit about your story, your background and your passion for safety.
2: Oh, thank you, Eric. Well, it's, it's a pleasure, first of all, to be here. And I can tell you that... Um, you know, I, I didn't have dreams or aspirations when I was young of being a professor. I just loved aviation. I, I think I was fascinated by <laughs> uh, by flight in general. I sort of still do think it's magical, even though I do understand the science behind it. It's um, just something captivating about it. And and so I grew up flying airplanes and helicopters starting when I was 15. Um, wow. I flew helicopters out of North Bay, Ontario, uh, doing some really fun flying in the bush where you you know, you actually use chainsaws and build your own landing <laughs> pads and, you know, <laughs> quite rugged. Um, and then at that time, um, because in Canada, piloting hasn't always been a university level discipline. It's more so a college level discipline. And I had just finished a college diploma. I was looking for a university education. So I actually went down to ember riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida, um, and finished my my bachelor's degree And then at the end of that, two uh, really big life-altering things happened. Uh, A colleague on campus was uh, really tragically killed in a training accident. And simultaneously, or within a matter of months, uh, 9-11 happened. So it um, really shook the foundation of who I was and my dreams and, uh, you know, the idea that, um, the industry that you love and that you find inspiration and excitement and passion in is used to cause so much pain and devastation mm-hmm. and, uh, widespread hurt around the world. Um, it really did cause me to rethink, uh, what my path would be. And so I went back and I earned my master's degree in human factors, which is kind of like the science of why people make mistakes <laughs> and, uh, and then came back to Canada and uh, that's when I started as
1: a professor and earned my PhD in education. Excellent. Well, well, thank you for for coming here to to share a little bit about your story and some of the, some of the backgrounds. And I think one of the pieces I'd like to touch on first is really the linkage between some of the principles of safety that we talk about in the aviation world versus what happens on the ground. Because I I, I think in in many many ways the aviation space is probably the most advanced when it comes to to safety and and really understanding the the human and natural limitations that we have.
2: For sure. Yeah. Well, I can tell you a little bit of the history of where we, how we've gotten to where we are today in aviation with our understanding of safety. And Mm -hmm. I think what's important to understand, if you look back like to the seventies and eighties, there was this culture where if a pilot was to make a mistake uh, and, and survive an accident, then they would be fired and, uh, you know, removed from the industry. And I think that everybody's response is, finger pointing at that person, how how could they have possibly made such a terrible mistake, which of course, you know, has devastating impacts, because not only is there the pain in the accident, but there's also that individual is going to be experiencing a lot of trauma uh, from that. Because what we, uh, what we learned over time was that, uh, number one, in the late 1970s and early 80s, there were a series of very high profile aviation accidents uh-huh. that were primarily caused by Pilot error, and it really challenged the industry to say, "Like, how is this possible? Like, how could such an intense network of intelligent, dedicated people make such obvious mistakes?" Um, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 is probably the most obvious example. Yep. Yeah, which is just a faulty light bulb, which caused so much focus of attention, they didn't realize they disengaged the autopilot and flew their aircraft into the ground. And and so these these kinds of things challenged the industry. So uh, what happened was a really amazing example of government, academia, and industry coming together to say, what can we do about this? And they created the first human factors training program, which they called, mm-hmm. now it's called crew resource management training or right. CRM. Uh, meant to teach pilots about human limitations. Um, but that's only one part of it, because uh, that still puts, I think, a lot of the focus of blame on the individual. And it doesn't ask broader organizational questions around, you know, is it really that person's fault if they have faulty equipment or didn't receive training or they have been <laughs> on a schedule that's impossible and any human, you know, would be tired or exhausted. So so it's, um, it also shifted at the same time so we have human factors, but we also have the organizational approach to safety. And yep. what this does is it looks at the entire organization from the top all the way to the bottom and making sure that we, you know, everybody is identifying areas of risk and eliminating them uh, mm-hmm. before an accident happens. So it's not just about the end pilot user. It's about everybody that contributed to that accident or that flight on a particular day.
1: And I think there's a lot of parallels and a lot of learnings that – come of that space that that could definitely be translated into a lot of uh, other environments I know you, you've done some work um, on some ground safety I believe on the mechanical on the maintenance side of, of aviation uh, mm-hmm. what are some of the parallels that you saw when you were translating principles from human factors to uh, workers on the ground um, that could be exposed to hazards
2: absolutely well I think uh, what is very universally true is that we're all human beings. And, and so the, the same types of limitations that one experiences as a pilot or a maintenance engineer, or um, an airside worker, these are all the same basic uh, issues because they're all about our natural bodies and our minds. Mm. So when I'm, when I'm explaining this to my students, I always say, you know, if somebody makes a mistake and you pull that person out and put any other random person in with the same types of background and experience, Mm -hmm. if that new person, it's feasible that they might make that same mistake, then we really need to question if it's fair for us to be blaming all of our our focus on on that individual. Like, we really need to look at the the task, the environment, and the situation. Um, Mm. But what I did find in translating it is that you have to articulate this. It's such an emotionally impactful and, and sometimes challenging issue, because if you don't articulate it correctly, it sounds like you're questioning a person's competency or, mm-hmm. or questioning their commitment to their job, when in reality, what you're just saying is we're all people and our limitations can be scientifically predicted and tracked. So why don't we learn all of that information and take <laughs> it in before it leads to an accident? But But it does require us to you know, to make sure what that core message that it's basically being wrapped in um, something that is true to the job role and that is using this, the right language and examples uh, to that role.
1: That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So, so tell me about the, the importance of education when it comes to safety.
2: Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm a big education nut. Like I, I uh, the focus of my world is in um, trying to support the next generation and trying to teach them as best that I can um, to support the future of our industry. So um, that being said, as much as I, I love teaching, and I think some of my most uh, exciting and powerful experiences professionally have been in classrooms as a teacher. Um, that being said. Education is not always the best way to eliminate risk in an organization that from a human factors perspective, mm-hmm. you know, if you change the the task that they're doing, if you change the equipment uh, that they're using, sure. um, the operational environments and noise, temperature, uh, distractions, um, a lot of those things are, I think, universally easier ways to eliminate risk. And mm-hmm. sometimes I think it falls back to where we're using education as uh, a default, that it's too challenging or expensive to change some of those bigger structures of a job. Sure. Um, and so we try to uh, solve a problem by throwing a few hours of training at the problem. But I think mm-hmm. it really does offload some of that responsibility to the workers. And, and I think we have to question and always be really careful. Is that ethical? Uh, and, and is that fair? Or are we really putting our priority on, on the appearance that we've done something rather than... Investing our best effort to actually reduce that risk.
1: Mm. I think that, that's an important, the, the hierarchy of controls really in terms of um, eliminating the, the hazard that could be present as opposed to, to trying to train the, the individual to, to, to manage it.
2: Yes, exactly. And the reality, like we know from a human factors perspective, that training is sort of one of the tools in your toolbox uh, that you can use to support, uh, you know, big organizational change and improvement uh, to make things safer. Um, but it's not the only thing. And, and sometimes okay. it's the more expensive and and the one that has, uh, you know, a more substantial uh, ongoing cost <laughs> over a longer period of time. Uh, Like you can imagine, for example, if we're looking at cars, that we all know that texting and driving is very dangerous (laughs) and nobody should ever do that. Um, But if we're teaching a person, like how much energy and effort has gone into teaching teenagers, don't do this, right? Like that's so dangerous, you know, you should never do this. But if there was a, a way where the cell phone itself could just uh, you know, disengage uh, while it's right. in a car, for example, uh, then that equipment shift eliminates that risk, right? And, and, and so right. Um, something quite simple where it has like a sweeping widespread, obviously there's other implications in that example. but, um, right. <laughs> but I think you know it's a much more effective way to eliminate uh, the risk of that one situation uh, rather than putting the emphasis on the people and, mm-hmm. and th- through training
1: similar to a lot of GPSs in cars that will uh, pr- typically stop working or stop uh, allowing to be uh, managed or controlled when the vehicle is in motion you could do the exact same thing with a with a, a texting device
2: exactly and and I think you know of course that's a simple example but if you think of the parallels to to aviation I think it's still very true that it's such a heavily regulated industry and and so we're always you know trying to provide the evidence that's required to the regulators I've completed you know five hours of training on this or or, you know so many (laughs) uh you've demonstrated that you've taken that action but I've had some really interesting talks with international regulators at the highest level around this uh hours metric for training because in aviation it's always based on hours right you have to do five True. hours of this or ten hours of this and I said why hours because everyone knows it's not the hours that make an impact it's what happens during that time it's the it's the experience and the learning and he said well okay I'll tell you a secret we know that <laughs> but but he said the reality is put yourself in my shoes if I'm an international regulator And our safety board has identified some sort of a safety deficiency. He said that the uh, most obvious and direct thing that I can do is to throw a few hours of training at the problem because it shows that we've tried, you know, we've made this effort to address it. But he said, even I know that it's not going to fully eliminate that risk. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was mind blowing because (laughs) somebody who loves aviation, like you grow up, you know, aligning everything under these regulations. And when you come to learn that, they're made by people as well, and you know, right. people are perfect and just doing the best they can. You know, under challenging situations, then it does allow you to really refocus and, and um, I think, question whether there's an opportunity to to do things even better.
1: Great, and so so some of the the topics you talked about earlier on when you were talking about human factors was around crew resource management and how that got cascaded. Uh, for for listeners that aren't familiar with crew resource management and maybe some of the elements in terms of how human factors can get uh, trained or taught to pilots. Can you give maybe a bit of a highlight as to what, what the, the core principles are so people can think maybe about how it could translate to on-the-ground examples?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, so crew resource management as it is today is required annual training for almost all pilots in the civilian world. And it has a few core components that includes things like workload management. So uh, in our world, it's like fly the plane first. So aviate, then navigate, then communicate. (laughs) So so it's this task prioritization. So workload management is number one. Situation awareness is, is number two. And situation awareness is sort of like if you're in your operational setting, it's your mental picture of everything around you. And people may be shocked, but one of the most common Uh, categories of accidents is called controlled flight into terrain. So it's flying Mm. a perfectly good airplane into the ground, um, which is a a result of a lack of situation awareness. Um, And uh, so that's a very big one as well. Uh, Communication and crew coordination. So how you talk to and use uh, the resources around you, um, including the technology, but also all all the people uh, in the aircraft and air traffic controllers and other supporters on the ground Um, so those are some of the, the big categories, but it's it's based on a very robust and, um, and deep uh, interdisciplinary field of research, uh, which mm-hmm. maybe doesn't mean a lot to people, but I can tell you when I'm teaching human factors, I don't teach like a, a list of memorization. So uh, new pilots will learn something called the I'm safe to checklist, where before okay. they go flying, they should do... Illness, medication, stress, alcohol, fatigue, and eating—kind of checks like, "Am I okay?" In <laughs> all these categories. <laughs> um, so that's what most pilots know uh, at the very beginning. But when I teach it at the university, it's uh, it's a sort of a foundation of um, your natural human limitation. So it's some um, psychology and thinking: how much how much information can you reasonably be expected to retain at any one point in time, and and when is the any person going to start making mistakes? It's your senses, so all of your senses, how you take in that information, and how it could be tricked and distorted, Uh and how you can't always trust your senses. Um, It's anthropometry, which is the measurement of the human body, because... In an aircraft, you know, all of the controls have to be within a certain level of sure. reach of humans, um, and it's the limitations of work. So when anybody in the world would expect it to become tired and start making mistakes, uh, whether it's due to a lack of sleep or just a prolonged period of mental or physical work um, – yeah, and and there's also we get into some issues around things like mental health and, and substance abuse because those are also very human things uh, that affect uh-huh. uh, affect all of us in our populations. Um, there's a lot of other factors I'm, I'm probably uh, missing, <laughs> but that's kind of what how we build it up is sort of these are the foundational building blocks. Um, and if I have the students take away one thing, it's that you know, to err as human, that, that you yeah. shouldn't expect people to never make mistakes. It should be the exact opposite. You should expect that it's 100% normal for even the most competent professionals to make mistakes. And if you start from that foundation, then you can build up to say, where are those mistakes most likely to happen? And how can I manage and capture them before they may uh, have an impact that mm. causes harm? This episode of the Safety Guru podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com.
1: That's that's excellent. So so tell me a little bit about, you've talked about human factors. How does it contrast to safety management system as it pertains to the aviation world?
2: Sure, yeah. So this is probably one of the biggest confusions in, in the aviation world is that even career professionals sometimes uh, don't know the difference between human factors and safety management so human factors is kind of like the, the like I said already, it's a scientific mm. discipline of why people make mistakes. So a little bit of psychology, ergonomics, physiology, uh, so all of these sort of scientific foundations, as well as education, that's a really big part sure. of it as well. Um And then that leads up to crew resource management, which is where we teach operators about all of these limitations and give them some strategies about how to avoid them and how to work together and how to avoid error. Um, And that's sort of in one one category. And then the Mm -hmm. second category is... um, organizational factors associated with safety so um, most people in aviation most commonly know this through what we call reasons model um, reasons model has layers of protection uh, mm-hmm. so there's like five squares you can imagine but then each one of them has holes in it which you can think of as layers of swiss cheese so mm-hmm. <laughs> each each layer has its own holes uh, and each layer represents sort of from the highest level senior management and then as you work forwards it's you know the training manager and then the far piece is the actual operators like the pilots uh, on the flight deck and the concept is that uh, those holes in the layers represent latent failures so they're like accidents waiting to happen so whether it's you know, management uh, not investing up in training or a maintenance uh, engineer who has a like a, a poor practice where they're you know, making a mistake over and over or, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be. There's these these opportunities for accidents. And then it's only when holes and all those layers line up perfectly that an mm-hmm. accident happens. So so the concept is that the accident itself is actually quite rare. But uh, instead of focusing all of our attention on the accident, which is what we had sure. historically done—you know, fire the crew—it <laughs> doesn't address all those holes. Like the, the, those risks are still in that organization. So, so the concept of safety management systems, at its core, is the identification and elimination of those latent failures before mm-hmm. they have an opportunity to line up and cause an accident. So, it's a, a proactive rather than a reactive approach to aviation safety.
1: Right, so so essentially reducing the probability of those holes lining up.
2: Yeah, and human factors plays in because human factors mm-hmm. can create those holes <laughs> through, right. through the whole system. So so that's one of the ways we can uh, reduce those holes. But but human factors can't address everything because, like I said, if there's like high-level management uh, managerial decisions that are mm-hmm. affecting every every part of the operation and equipment um, then you know no matter how hard a pilot at the end tries to do the best uh, you know tries to be as professional and safe as possible they don't have control over uh, other, those other factors they uh, they will be influenced by them
1: regardless excellent so uh, would'd love to talk a little bit about the work you've done at at Waterloo, uh, which is really interesting. I, as I mentioned at the front end, you're the founding director of the Waterloo Institute for Sustainable Aeronautics. Tell me a little bit about uh, what this institute does and, and what you're trying to accomplish with uh, all of this linked experience that you're bringing together.
2: Oh, thank you. Well, I'm really excited because our institute is, is um, will be launching on October 5th, uh, 2021. And <laughs> it's the product of years of work but what really led to the Institute for me was when the pandemic hit and in my field, like I'm, like so many others, like pe- so many people were out of work, you know, alumni, right. friends and colleagues, just, just tremendous devastation. And when I saw so many of my colleagues who were 100% focused on just survival of, of their, you know, of their organization through right. the pandemic... I started questioning, like, what can I do to support this sector that I care about? I'm, I'm, you know, an academic who lives in a university. Like, I can't uh, necessarily impact business decisions. But I kept questioning, like, what what could be of value uh, that I could contribute during this time? And reflecting on the big challenges that aviation was facing before the mm-hmm. pandemic, which I sort of defined as widespread personnel shortages on an international mm-hmm. scale, the growing environmental emissions. So if you remember that... Right. Greta Thunberg flight shaming movement was really uh, just growing uh, when the pandemic hit, um, as well as the rapid evolution of technology. And when you think of those three things, they really align with the three pillars of sustainability: it's, you know, mm-hmm. social, environmental, and economic sustainability. And at the same time, I also saw, you know, my uh, other big aviation universities around the world we're actively recruiting in areas where Waterloo has tremendous, like, world-leading experts already. So they're right. looking for AI experts in cybersecurity and cybersecurity and sort of everything in between. And it really hit me that, you know, we could have a tremendous impact in supporting the sector to set aviation and aerospace up for a more sustainable future after the pandemic, uh, if I could mobilize the strengths that were already at the university and sort of direct that, like the powerhouse that is Waterloo, uh, mm-hmm. towards these big challenges that I know were having a, a direct impact on on the people in the industry that I cared about, so that's uh, that's how wise it came to be, and uh, really what it is now, we have. About forty to forty-five different professors, uh, as well as you know their labs and grad students. We have a, a really distinguished advisory committee, um, with an honorary advisor of, of Commander Chris Hadfield and and mm-hmm. some amazing advisors internationally, and um, some industry partners who are coming on board. and And really, what it's meant to do is to form a bridge between aviation and aerospace and the university. So if uh, industry partners have challenges or problems, uh, they can work with uh, university professors to address those. And the beautiful part of that is in the process, they're educating graduate students who then go on and support Canada's knowledge economy and and become future leaders. So we're just getting started, but we've got uh, a lot of excitement about what comes next.
1: And when we talked earlier, you you mentioned some of the the examples of a linking experience. You talked about some examples of bringing engineering to the table, machine (laughs) learning. Can you give maybe some of the examples of how these themes come together And the power that it brings.
2: Yeah. So, you know, what's different, I think, about universities as opposed to industry is that industry problems are very multidimensional, right? Like lots of different Mm. skill sets come together to create that problem. But then when you compare it to a university environment, you know, professors are incredibly um, high levels of expertise in a very narrow area, and they live within pockets of their own discipline. So you have psychology in one pocket and engineering in another and, and um, health or science in in another, for example. And, and then what's, uh, what I think is what we're hoping to do with the Institute was to break down those silos and allow a connection between the different disciplines on campus. So Mm -hmm. as an example, I'm working with a few colleagues right now, and we're looking at how pilots are trained, because, as I mentioned earlier, there's sort of distinct uh, personnel shortages projected internationally. And so how do we address that? So I have, um, one colleague who's in uh, cognitive psychology, looking at the process of how people take in information and learn. Um, Mm. another who is in kinesiology, who looks at hand eye coordination and the development of those skills. Um, Mm. Another who's in optometry, so she's looking at how your eyes move across uh, your environment and take in that information, and whether that can come together to be an indication of expertise. Um, And another who is in engineering, who looks at, um, it's it's a form of machine learning, artificial intelligence, so if you could take all those data points into a computer, basically, could the computer then, when a new person comes in and flies, automatically assess their performance and automatically tell them, you know, where where they're strong and where they need to focus more to improve their skills by comparing to, you know, a big database of others. And I think the, the really exciting part of that is if we were able to do that effectively, You can then justify to the regulators moving more training out of aircraft flying uh, in the real world and Mm -hmm. into simulators, and that has distinct environmental benefits. So that, you know, it's producing far less emissions, and it's also saving young people money because training becomes far more customized to what they need so they're paying for less hours and simulators are usually cheaper than the airplane so so you're hitting you know the economic you're hitting the social improvement and the environmental improvement when you see this like beautiful magical mix of all these disciplines coming together to address a problem
1: that's that's excellent and i think when i when i see that when i hear your story when you're trying to drive this this multidisciplinary view really can can bring uh, can be used in other sectors in other environments to really start melishing different levels of expertise to address safety challenges uh, across the board
2: hundred percent and I think safety is such a perfect illustration of this because just like education it, it's not uh, it's not one thing it's not one discipline right so so you can't you know create a perfectly safe system only looking at it from the perspective of psychology like it feels like it's almost like you have pieces of the puzzle, right. and that's one important piece of the puzzle. But um, until you identify and link those other pieces together, then you don't have the
1: full picture. I think that's an incredibly important message um, in terms of that, that multidisciplinary view of things to, to drive things forward. Suzanne, thank you so much for, for the work that you're driving around uh, safety in the aviation space. Uh, as somebody who, who used to fly a lot, I, I appreciate that part as well, but more importantly, really coming uh, to our podcast to, to share your story, share some ideas. I think there's some really great examples, illustrations that people can take from what's being done in, in the aviation space to translate it to, to really that learning organization, thinking about as humans, where are we going to make a mistake because it's bound to happen. So really appreciate you coming to, to share a story. Thank you very much
0: like what we do share this on your socials and tell everyone thank you for listening to the safety guru on c-suite radio leave a legacy distinguish yourself from the pack grow your success capture the hearts and minds of your teams fuel your future come back in two weeks for the next episode or listen to our sister show with the ops guru eric mccroskey